0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio. I'm your host, Dave Mays, and today's guest is Roberto Blake. YouTube educator and insane creative entrepreneur with well over 10 different projects that he's working on and businesses. It's kind of insane. Uh, We talk about all this in this conversation. We talk about how he got started in this as a young 13 year old getting into the internet and making a full-time living on the internet. If you're not familiar with Roberto, he kind of made a name for himself as one of the early YouTube educators on the platform. And now he's running many businesses, including consulting companies and selling different templates, and all sorts of assets for creators. In our conversation, we talk about how to get started as a YouTuber in the modern era, as well as some of the mistakes and some of the things that are going on right now with creators on the platform. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's about two hours long, so buckle in and get ready for a great conversation about YouTube and running successful businesses in the creative space. If you haven't watched our videos on our YouTube channel, would you please go over to youtube.com slash ghpod. You can actually watch this video interview Uh, If you want to go back and forth between this audio and the actual video, I also put chapter markers in there so it's a little easier to consume. So without any further ado, let's listen into my conversation with Roberto Blake. So I'm here today with my friend Roberto Blake. As you can see, I'm uh, working on my set here, so it's kind of a mess. Thank you, Roberto, for uh, being on the podcast today. It's uh, been, I think we've been talking on Twitter about this. I'm glad we could line it up and make it work today.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Dave.
0: So we met uh, VidCon, I think, 2018, 2019, something like that. 2018, remember? I think, yeah. Yeah, I was doing the camera gear stuff uh, with Kinotika, and you were hanging out with, I think, uh, Jason Vong and uh, Atola Visuals, and I just yeah. came over and we got to chat, and uh, it was a short you know, meeting, but ever since then, I feel like we've been Twitter buddies and uh, kind of seen each other at other uh, events, at least before yeah, COVID, Yeah, back when obviously. we could...
1: Back when we could do that,
0: <laughs> a lot has happened, man. A lot has happened in the last two years for you, and uh, for people who aren't familiar with Roberto, Roberto Blake, could you please just give us a brief, uh, you know, explanation of who you are, what you do, and then we could get into some nitty gritty uh, YouTube talk here. Yeah,
1: we could do the brief history of me. So,
0: <laughs> so <laughs> I'm my curious name's. Too, uh...
1: Yeah, I'm Roberto Blake. Uh, I am what they call a creative entrepreneur. And so my YouTube journey has been really interesting because I was a full-time freelancer, having come from a background as a traditional marketer at a company, a graphic designer who worked at an ad agency, worked at a company before that had been a freelance photographer, had even been like a studio photographer at like Sears back in the days when I worked at the mall as a, nice. you know, a strapping young man. And uh, so I, I did all those things. And eventually I made my way to YouTube. I, I started my account and dabbled in like 2009, uh, even though I'd been on the platform before in like 2005. So like I'm technically an OG YouTuber, but I didn't take my own content seriously um, until 2013. I don't feel like you can say you're a YouTube creator until you make a commitment to your audience. And for me, what that looked like was uploading at least once a week. So um, I started with the skills that gave me a livelihood. I started teaching people uh, graphic design and video and photography the way that um, I understood it because I felt like I grew up in the primitive age of the internet back before Google, Google, and before YouTube, it's like, back back in my day, all we had
2: was AOL. <laughs> yeah, so like, true. so
1: uh, I, I'm 37, I like, or it will be in June. I graduated uh, in 2002 from high school. So like I grew up with the old internet and uh-huh. there weren't a lot of good resources. There weren't a lot of things to teach people like me. And so I started with those you know, tutorials and that career advice. I started with what gave me my start as a young adult in the world. And then as uh, it went on in my first year in like 11 months, I got to 10,000 subscribers was not expecting that. That's awesome. Um, it, it forced me. It it sounds great, but it terrified me because it forced me to get good because I didn't have the expectation of an audience when I started. Mm. And therefore like waking up and realizing that you have an audience is a responsibility. It's a lot of pressure. And it, like, I, I wasn't happy to begin with, with the level of my content, just because mostly it was my on-camera performance. I didn't like, there are a few things I felt I could be better at in editing and editing out like mistakes or things like that. I felt really horrible about the audio. I felt really bad for people with the audio, which is why I've invested so much money into audio (laughs) now. Like we're sitting here with the Rodecaster Pro, the Shure uh, (laughs) SM7B and every like freaking cloud lifter, like everything under the sun, just to get that that crisp crisp audio like so i recently
0: just i recently been obsessed with taking the foam piece off of this mic because it sounds so much cleaner um once i use this pop filter here it just cleans it up interesting yeah play play around with it give it a try
1: yeah i might like i might go there like see you give me one more thing to like mess around (laughs) with what i've got almost perfect right but uh
0: (laughs) sorry to interrupt no you're fine but but
1: like things evolved um i evolved and i started uh you know, broadening the scope of the information I present to my audience. I wanted to talk about what it's like to have a creative career. And I wanted to talk not just about my experience in design, but other things as well. Uh, So I made the mistake of doing variety content, but uh, it still (laughs) worked out more or less. Uh, It doesn't, you know, give you the most uploads, like most, sorry, most views per upload, but works out well enough, uh, which means that by 2016, three years in, Um, I'd achieved 100,000 subscribers. I had gotten a silver play button. I started it with, in February 2015, I had 20,000 subscribers. I had like 75,000 by the end of that year. And because of that growth, people started asking me more questions about YouTube. And so I started wanting to explain things that I didn't see a lot of information on. You have to remember, this is before all the YouTube health channels that would come up later, great people like Nick Nimmin and stuff like that. Back then, it was primarily Daryl Eves and Tim Schmoyer, but they were just starting Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk about it from the perspective of I didn't want to be a YouTube help channel. I just wanted to show people that this is part of building a personal brand. This is part of making money online. This is part of something that I have experience in that I started to do well,
2: Mm. or at
1: least well compared to like 90% of the population on the platform. So I, you know, wanted to be helpful. And I started with telling people like the, the camera settings, the, the lighting, the, the different things that it just takes to make content. I didn't start with the growth things, but people asked about that the same way they asked about how much to charge for their logo design, how to become a web designer, how to get a job in the industry, whether college is worth it for those professions. So Like people had questions, I gave my best answers and uh, that has just continued since all the way up to about. 500,000 subscribers of me That's just amazing. making content yeah. about everything I've learned along the way, whether it's, you know, making merch or doing e-commerce or or setting up a membership club, whatever, you know, whatever you're trying to accomplish in the creator economy that we're all part of now yeah. is what um, I think has become my legacy of how I'm going to give people their start in the industry.
0: And you also, you know, make a living, I would assume, doing consulting and different things like that. Yes. Too. So, if people are listening and they go to your YouTube channel, that's not your sole income. It's not it's even close. part of it. Yeah, it's part of it, but yeah, not yeah, exactly. I mean, what? So what is your majority of your actual like? I,
1: it's so bread, diversified. You know? See, I, I I have a massively diversified uh, income in the same way that people tell you, you have a diversified investment portfolio. You know, mm-hmm. um, I tell people to simplify it to simplify it because, like, for me, there's like so much I could get into with that, but to simplify it, I tell people that you need to kind of look at like this. You have royalty income, which is not just your YouTube ad revenue, even though that's how it's taxed now. It's important to think about it even from a tax standpoint. Like Uh you have your royalty income. You should have, in my opinion, some direct to consumer type business. So that's gonna be Mm e-commerce. I believe in affiliate income. Where I do it is recurring affiliate income, usually software as a service, okay? Mm -hmm. So I do um, that. So there's the royalties, and we'll get into there's more than YouTube royalties. There's Mm e-commerce, there's affiliate, there's Mm -hmm. services you can use your skills. Cause like, again, it came from that background freelancing. And then there is brand deals. And that's kind of what I believe in is I believe in having those different things. So with me, I have um, a substantial income that comes from affiliate. I would say that I have about $7,000 a month recurring. That's like a guaranteed recurring from all the software as a service stuff. So that's seven grand a month. I don't have to think about because it's all amazing sales that thank you. Like it's all accounts that, you know, even with churn, it all just like new people come in. So it doesn't matter because that's what tutorial channels really benefit from. Tutorial channels benefit massively from affiliate marketing, but it doesn't have to be one-off affiliate marketing. Yes. I make some money from Amazon. I make some money from like epidemic sound, these one-off things, audible, whatever. Those are one-time bounties. My real money and the bulk of it is in the recurring, Software account revenue, the recurring services revenue, because those are like in perpetuity forever. And what, so that's what is, is that? Your, and things your like.
0: courses or or no, no that's no, your no, that's
1: software, like actual software. That's like TubeBuddy, Buddy, Good. Kajabi, ConvertKit, things like that. Software. Okay. So. And that's, uh, and that's, you know, really a great way if you're doing tutorials, like, you know, if you're a part of any affiliate program where it's like every month, you know, you're going to get a check for everyone that you brought into the business. Gotcha. A yeah. Great relationship. Cause it's like the only time that you are truly rewarded in proportion to the value that you create for a company.
0: Yeah. I have some buddies that make a ton off of uh, epidemic sound.
1: Yeah. No, they're a great company. I love yeah. them. And I do very well with them too, but it's not recurring even though every month i get a nice check it's not
0: yeah (laughs) into like you know every time every time a friend of mine does like a a film contest it's like make sure to use copyright free music and use my link below if you want a free month of epidemic you know it's just it's just for this competition it's not for me to make a ton of money off of your signups yeah it's not that at (laughs) all so
1: yeah so like epidemic's great i love them great relationship yes the 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 other thing is With YouTube royalties, people don't realize that there are other platforms that play royalties. Mm. Uh, For example, I did a course with LinkedIn uh, back when they were just acquiring lynda.com. So, like, Mm. there are places that pay you. Skillshare is another great one. Skillshare is probably, like, the best right now because you get paid Mm. for the number of minutes. You get, like, paid for the number of minutes that people consume your stuff. So I'm actually about to build out a lot of course material on my skills. Things that oh, cool. may not get as many views on my YouTube channel. I'm looking at the things that I'm really skilled at, very passionate about that could be helpful. and mm-hmm. going to put those out as courses for Skillshare's premium because for every minute consumed, you get like six cents. Like that's oh, wow. close to like thinking about like, I'll put it to you like this. YouTube ad revenue for someone like me, who's in a business niche that has a $20 CPM, YouTube pays me one penny per view, per view, regardless of how many minutes watched, one penny per view. A normal YouTuber in an entertainment niche doesn't get a $20 CPM, they get like a $2 CPM. So they make a tenth of a penny per view.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's insane. So
1: when you think about it, YouTube can be lucrative. It's more lucrative if you use the business model that I've outlined where you know that you have these five uh, big income streams and then multiple sources in them because like yeah. if if one of your income streams... Is royalties YouTube ad revenue is one source of royalties. Skillshare can be another. Facebook can be another if you meet the qualifications. Mm-hmm. TikTok can be another, mm-hmm. and even um, if you write books, I'm working on that now. Books and eBooks, Amazon royalties. You also you could do voiceover for somebody else's book, and you could opt out of taking a larger fee to just mm-hmm. take a portion of royalties in perpetuity, mm-hmm. um, and so your voiceover work. Can make you royalties, performances, and things like that. Or even if you do brand deals, you can build royalties into that by um, doing licensing. Depends on um, what the arrangement is. Yeah. So, so like, so royalty, uh, I've recently launched a faceless music channel, but I also have the music going up in Spotify. And now I'm a Spotify verified artist. I'm in Apple. I'm in all that. So, like, (laughs) eventually, Wow. My copyright-free music, Zenbuster Music. Everybody, check it out. Zenbuster Music. Are you making
0: so, it? Are you a DJ? Uh, I
1: hired a producer. I like. Okay. I used to do that in high school. I don't have as much time to do that, and I sure. feel like Frost is better than me. Frost FM is great. Like he's a great producer. So like That's Frost awesome. is making my stuff, and we have a royalty agreement where he gets a split, and also I pay him upfront. Sure. Sure. So he, he's get paid up front. He gets a portion of royalties. I get royalties in perpetuity. It's win for everybody. Clever. I keep the ad revenue when the YouTube channel hits monetization. We're very close to that now because of watch time. So, yeah. So, like, I've created a place where I, like, I can get a lot of royalties. I love it. You know, and I'm trying to expand on that. Yeah. We're very close to getting ad revenue in Facebook. Like I said, I'm going to Skillshare. So, like, it's that kind of thing.
0: I feel like we could go on and on. I, the thing that's fascinating to me is the amount of, of of revenue streams you have. I think a lot of people are hearing this, and like, it, you could probably list another twenty things, right? Um, <laughs> and we can we can get into more detail here. But the thing sure. that's fascinating to me is just w- when was that moment that you realized this potential with the internet? Because I know for me, once once my light bulb went off of like, holy cow, the internet there's no barrier to how there's no like ceiling to how much you can make. There's no barrier to entry. It's literally just you create, you hired a producer and you made a channel and now you're about to get monetized, you know, and you could end up making royalties and for the next decade. And we started that in January. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're talking about a career thing like that could last you the next 20 years of your life of, of income coming in because like,
1: music's in perpetuity. The books, yep. uh with writing an ebook every year and a print book every other year, I've mm-hmm. I've literally planned out my ten book career. Like I know what my ten books are. Like yeah. So it's, what what was that light bulb
0: for moment for you when you was there was there an artist that you saw that like really resonated with you with the internet or like was it just because you got got in early on the internet? I've been on the internet
1: problems. forever, so there's that. Um, but I think that um I started realizing that. I don't know how complex this term is for your audience, but I started realizing uh, what economies of scale are a couple of years back. But I always had an intuition about it, even from the beginning. I, I I went all in on the internet when I was 13 years old, which is like almost 24 years ago now.
0: Yeah, that's amazing.
1: Like I mostly decided to live on the internet right then and there when my family got its first real computer and got AOL. Uh-huh. AOL.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: my grandmother... Gave up a lot. She didn't have a lot of income. She was like a CNA nurse in um, a Mm. New York hospital and didn't, you know, fixed income, all that stuff. She like maxed out her credit card to get us a real computer and get us the top of the line at the time, best computer, printer, scanner, fax, all of it. And, um, you know, get us on the internet uh, because she wanted to give us every opportunity. And awesome. that gift changed my entire life. Yeah. Like I, I, there's not like, yeah. So, and my grandmother, before she passed, she got to see me be successful. She got to see me hit my first six figure year before and, awesome. you know, and uh, get my like YouTube play button the year that like she passed. So she like got to see the beginnings of, you know, what I have today. She got to see that's great, me be on the way to that. She got to see her grandson make it. Um
0: Do you think that's what, what gave you that fire is, is seeing where, your, your grandmother came from and where your parents came from and, and giving you this opportunity and like saying to yourself, I'm not going to squander this opportunity. A lot of it is that a lot of it is that.
1: And the fact that as a kid, I lived in my head a lot.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: like I finally had the resources or the beginnings of the resources because even for then the technology of that time was so limited that I couldn't do everything I would want to do. But yeah. as I got older, you know, I, I, I like, I I wanted to be eventually, well, I wanted to be an animator and eventually, like, passed on that to, because we, like, you're poor, so it's like, oh, technology doesn't scale and, like, I'm poor, I can't do that. Like, so, at the time, today, today, if I was,
0: today, if you want
1: to be an animator and you're 16, you can not only do it, you not only can get the technology, literally, get the resources by mowing lawns or working at McDonald's, you would be able to afford the best resources to do this. <laughs> but now iPad. there's a platform you can monetize it on. <laughs> None of amazing. that existed.
0: I want, I want to be an animator too. I was going to go to SCAD uh, out there in Savannah, Georgia, actually. That was,
1: that was part of my plan back then. I lived in North Carolina at the time, but my plan was to do that or to go to Raleigh. Yeah. Yeah. Or even to go, or even potentially to go to RISD. I
0: was, I was going to go to either CalArts or SCAD, but CalArts seemed way out of question cause it was so expensive, but um, yeah. I'm glad I didn't. I I went to community
1: college in the end.
0: Same, yeah, same here. I I ended up dropping out after two years because I was shooting. I ended up dropping
1: out eventually. Uh, (laughs) Um, but I ended up dropping out and became a graphic designer at a company, which a company where that was the job and the like company I had planned to work at upon graduating. And I got Mm -hmm. in on my portfolio and a recommendation without that. So like, (laughs) don't don't let people limit you and convince you you can't do something without a degree or that oh you need a degree to do that. You just need a body of work and a reputation. And you can do anything in this world if you have a body of work that proves that you can Mm -hmm. and a reputation where people will vouch for the fact that you can.
0: Absolutely. That's
1: all it takes for real. Like a body of work and a reputation. And that's a lot because that's a lot to build, (laughs) to be very real with you. yeah. So yeah, I did that. And I learned a lot because the thing is, I think in my mid 20s, I had achieved and surpassed. I had surpassed my professors and the people who had looked down on me or told me what I could or couldn't do. Mm -hmm. By the time I was like 25, by the time I was 25, the magazines that I had grown up watching, like like admiring people, looking at advanced Photoshop, Photoshop Creative, and I'm not saying this is a humble brag. I'm saying like like imagine growing up looking at other people's art in magazines and Mm -hmm. saying one day, one day, one day, Mm -hmm. and then that day comes and you're looking at yourself published in those magazines or on the cover or you have your artwork not my face but my artwork on the cover of that magazine and you and you're sitting there and you walk into a Barnes and Noble and there's some kid um with holding the magazine in their hand looking at your work
0: uh-huh and you're that able was, to say that's me that was you and that was you when yeah. you were a kid yeah it's it's amazing um I got a little glimpse of that recently when I was working with Indie Mogul. It was literally like, okay, this is, I wanted to go to Hollywood and make it in the film industry and be a a YouTuber for a big channel. And here it is. And it, it's funny. Like when you get to that point, sometimes it's like, okay, now what, you know?
2: Yeah. (laughs) At at least for me, that's that's what happened.
0: (laughs) Being a father and being a, and a husband and stuff, I realized living in LA wasn't a good place for my family. And I was essentially a workaholic and wasn't present with, the people that matter to me. So what was the light
1: bulb for you for that?
0: Um, well, it's a lot of things, but basically realizing that I was not, I was just, wasn't with my kids. My kids are three and one and I just was seeing them grow up and I was working nonstop. And I just, I missed every, like on a Saturday I would go to the beach with them or whatever. And I just loved every minute of it. I'm like, how can I have more of this, but still work? Well, well, You have to work a lot to live in LA and buy a home so I can move to another state where I don't have to make as much money and therefore work a little bit less to, you know, pay my bills and, uh, whatnot. So that's
1: why, why does every YouTuber feel they have to move out to LA? (laughs)
0: Well, I, I did get an opportunity to host this show for polar pro and they're based in orange County. So that was the initial draw. But I think it was something about just going to VidCon and being around everybody and kind of realizing, like, oh, you live here? You live here too? Oh, uh, okay, yeah, maybe I'll live here. And it was nice, like, to hang out with Armando and yeah. Devin. And I could just call somebody up and be like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Let's go do a video together, you know. But COVID changed all that, so yeah. But um, I don't know. What? Yeah. What was your light bulb moment? You said you you're on a magazine and you kind of had that realization. Like now, what?
1: Well, there was part, it was partly that. And I was working at an ad agency in New York at the time. Um, And I was born in New York. Uh, So I was um, living, um, you know, at a relative's place. um, And I did that for like a year. And it was one of the peaks of my like career career, like my traditional career, I got to work Um, as a result of that agency on campaigns for HBO boxing, HBO sports. I got to work on stuff for we TV, big 10 network, Madison square garden, like all these names. And I bring this up just because again, I want you guys to understand. I'm not bragging as much as I'm saying like, this was the dream. Yeah. Yeah. And I was miserable. I want you to understand (laughs) that I was doing this and miserable. Mm. Like I, like, was making the most money I had made at that time, which wasn't really a lot. We're talking, like, like 40 thousand dollars. But, like, when you're 20-something years old and you're on your own, like, that's, like, you know, that's, like, really good money. And stuff oh, totally. Like, like but <laughs> um, especially I was helping. a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, especially a couple of years ago. But I was helping my family with, like, all the debt and, like, so many oh, other wow. stuff and sending money back home. And then... um you know, even though I was staying at a relative's place, I was on my own and taking care of myself. I was just like using their place. Like, so, and I bought like nothing. I owned like nothing. It's why I can't even today. Like I hate being a minimalism as much as I love Matt Diavella. Minimalism made me miserable because it just takes me back to a traumatic place of having nothing.
2: Mm.
1: The, the thing I would say is, um, I was miserable and I hit a rock bottom of depression um, that Mm. went to a very, very dark place, like a very, very dark place. And I like decided that I had to change my life. Now, it didn't immediately lead to entrepreneurship, but Mm. it did lead to me doubling down on my side hustles. Um, It it led to me doubling down on side hustles. It led to me uh, going back to North Carolina, taking a job as a marketing manager for a number of years. And then literally I ended up miserable again after thinking I was going to make like this big difference in the company, which I financially did, but I didn't change the culture dramatically enough to be a good place for me. (laughs) I've been there. Yeah. So, um, realizing that it's somewhat impossible in many cases to change things from within, it really comes down to, you just have to build something better. And so ultimately I spent a year plotting my exit from my job and doubling down on side <laughs> hustles and internet stuff. Thankfully yep. for years, I'd been building my personal brand. I had made somewhat of a, a name for myself in the design scene and in the freelancing scene. And in that, um, I had my body of work. I had my portfolio. I had my reputation outside of the company because yeah. it came down to a fire me or I quit kind of scenario. And hey, <laughs> oh, well, like, you know, We might need to help your help or to call or to call you to ask questions about all these wonderful systems that you put into place for us that we have no idea how to use. So as long as you're on like good terms and good behavior with us, we might say nice things about you if you ever need a job reference or referral. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's nice. In my head thinking, oh, that's cute.
0: Yeah, that's that's adorable.
1: (laughs) In my head thinking, oh, that's adorable.
0: That's like a challenge. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Like, oh, that's adorable. Because I'm like, oh, oh, you think that that's how this is going to work out Uh and um you know and again i never named the company i never shade them because there's good things that came from them there were a couple of good people there that were good to me but um and no matter what happened i learned a lot i learned a lot so like it's just one of those things though looking back a decade and knowing that you won is enough you don't have to like Mm. you know rub it
0: in anybody's nose um (laughs) and although even though it can be a little fun
1: (laughs) oh no it's like it is it is like it's i literally every anniversary of my um leaving the company, I crack open a bottle of wine. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I'm petty. Yeah, I, I'm too. the appropriate amount of petty though. Uh, that's amazing. But, but, I, but that's like, but that's every content creator's dream is to literally say, screw you and walk yeah. out and then to know it's going to be okay. And then we're praying to it's going to be okay. And then, so I just like, I just hustled. I was like, you know what? I felt confident in my abilities and my skills. And I was like, look, I created all this value for the company. I surely can create a fraction of that value for myself, uh, in the marketplace. And so I went full-time into my freelancing. Um, I like took YouTube seriously by the time, like, I was like, okay, I'm doing well freelancing. I can free up time and I can do this. So I came back to YouTube and, um, the rest as they like to say, like, is history from there. Later I would go on to grow, uh, into a public speaker in Mm -hmm. 2015. I became a public speaker. Um, which I right. hated in school, so it's imagine, it's crazy that I became really good at it. You did, and and um, I got to speak at speak at VidCon in twenty eighteen, I believe twenty eighteen, yeah, and then they brought met. me back for a virtual thing in twenty twenty. So I've like spoken at VidCon twice, uh, Vid like, Summit like mm-hmm. four times, I think now. Love
0: Daryl, Vid Summit every, has become the best one for sure, hands uh. down. Hands down, VidCon always, is like it always was. It always was. No, I as never... from a
1: secret society standpoint, like without the fans and none of that, like Vid Summit exactly. was always for us. Yes, it was the best,
0: so. and I, I hope that it continues to uh, to be so. I'm sure Daryl and uh, Mr. Beast will will let it do that well but. they're great
1: at preserving the culture of the things that they build
0: yeah absolutely. like they
1: they're very passionate about when they build something both when daryl leaves they're cut from the same cloth when daryl leaves and jimmy donaldson mr beast build something they really think about what the experience they want people to have of, of yeah. it is and they want to maintain the culture of anything they build and they're vi- they're visionary types they're visionary types they're also very obsessed with the quality of whatever they do to an unreasonable degree yeah. and that's why you can't really compete with them that
0: last yeah you're right i mean that last vidcon 2019 the last one i went to obviously that everybody went to um you know i bought the the creator pass or whatever so i could go see everybody and no offense to any of the amazing speakers i don't know if you spoke there too but like it was it felt empty i felt like i didn't get very much value out of it that year
1: they had the growing pains and they still have had the growing pains of the viacom acquisition Mm. because that changed the internal structure but also it changed the internal culture without mm-hmm. the culture that john and hank built mm-hmm. of course vidcon doesn't feel the same the thing yeah. it has in its favor I under vire
0: I, I didn't realize there was a switch there
1: yeah there's a regime change okay. uh, they exited they <laughs> exited sense. and they're focused on other things the um and I'm, it was a very lucrative offer the, the sure Um, The thing with Viacom bringing it on that brings something good to the table is the amount of resources. But Viacom also has the priorities of a corporation rather than um, an institution organization built by creators for creators and that puts creators first.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what
1: VidCon's ethos was. It can't have that as a corporate entity Um, and it won't.
0: Now it's just a pop culture hangout spot with a bunch of famous YouTubers, right? So
1: Essentially, there's not, there's not zero value. And again, it's still a good experience from an yeah. aspirational standpoint of people who, because again, you ask anyone under 18, they want to be a YouTuber, they think they do. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping that through my content, they'll learn better of it. But, um, and that's not to discourage anybody, but it's I, I think the thing that I do um, and what I think the other coaches give me the space to do is to interject the harshest realism into (laughs) the education and culture of becoming a content creator. And they kind of leave that for me. They are realistic and they're not selling pipe dreams. I don't want anyone to misinterpret that. Like, but they're very, very encouraging and very positive. Mm -hmm. Whereas I am a realistic version of optimism. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Like they will not tell you things like you suck I will tell you that you suck and that you're supposed to suck and it's okay because why would you not suck? You have no experience. Why would, like, my thing is I think it's unreasonable for anyone in their first year of being a content creator to look at growth and have any expectation of growth at all Mm -hmm. because, in my opinion, your first year of being a content creator, your only goal is to not be trash. (laughs) Yeah. Like, because you have no reason why, when you have zero experience under your belt Mm -hmm. and you have this overwhelming platform, and you have to learn camera gear and lighting and audio. Why wouldn't you be trash? Like if I if I told you, if I hired you at a corporate job and I said, congratulations, you're now a content creator for corporate, you know? Mm. It's like, like, welcome to company X. And here we believe in <laughs> like, not holding back the whip at all. Uh-huh. Congratulations in your new role as content creator. By year one, you must get the company's account from zero to 10,000 subscribers or we will fire you unceremoniously and you will never work in this town again. <laughs> How's that? Your starting salary is also based on the performance of everything you make, which means <laughs> you will go into the hole doing this job. <laughs> like if we were That's a company, true. like if, if you literally pitch somebody the job, of being a first year YouTuber mm-hmm. as a job description, <laughs> no one would apply.
0: That's a good point.
1: Like it is that serious, it's that bad. It's like no one would apply. Cause again, if I told you grow this many subscribers mm-hmm. or you're fired, you'd tell me, oh, well that's completely unreasonable. That's unfair to me. And how dare you put that on me? I have no experience, I have this, I can't control the algorithm. It's like, well, what if people don't like me? I have no control over that. But every content creator sets a subscriber goal. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but if I made it their job and told them you're fired and you'll never work in this town again, Uh they'd say, well, that's not fair. That's unreasonable. Why would you give me that goal? Uh, You're setting me up to fail. I'm like, so like if, if, if you're, if you, why would you be a more unreasonable boss to yourself? Why would you be an unreasonable boss to yourself and give yourself a stupid goal? That has no basis in reality and puts unfair expectations and an unfair burden on you, given Mm -hmm. you haven't even learned the beginnings of how to do any of this, let alone control any of it.
0: Heck yeah. Amen. Amen, brother. (laughs) So like that's my
1: kind of whole shtick. My whole shtick is like, you know, a lot of people think it's just the, oh, the toxic hustle culture. It's like, no, I'm like realistic because I treat it just like any other career that reserves respect. I treat it not as, oh, this is my dream job or this is my dream. It's like, this is a career career. That you have chosen this Mm -hmm. is an industry that you've decided to become a part of and you need to treat it with the same respect as anything else
0: yeah so let's talk to those people that are listening right now a lot of our listeners are photographers and uh, freelance videographers so they already have a little bit of a leg up in terms of the technical know-how I know for me personally being a magician previously and then a uh, filmmaker for 10 years. It was natural for me to to do YouTube. Um, but being in this particular niche, it's kind of hilarious because there's already this bar of you say I love what you've said. I've quoted you on this show before the the acceptable level of quality you have yeah. to like get to that, that point. threshold of acceptable quality that's it I love that that's such a great um, that's such a great line because it's true that's what you need to find for your niche and in the filmmaking like gear review niche the threshold is pretty high compared to others uh, it is but the thing is at that point you then have
1: to accommodate it through logistics and planning and preparation think of it like cooking thinking like cooking the raw ingredients are going to matter so that's important but Mm -hmm. also the preparation you have as a filmmaker you have all the great tools so you have wonderful tools but then it's down to your prep Mm -hmm. and your planning Mm -hmm. and it's down to your recipe Mm -hmm. and it's also down to having the best overall ingredients and the thing is you can create a process by making that the acquisition of all those things a little bit easier yeah totally Cause then the standard of, cause like, all right, I'll tell you a secret about uh, quality content. Let's hear it. You may have heard this before. So there are, there are two aspects mm-hmm. and then there's three elements. The two aspects of quality content are performance and production. Okay. One of those things is subjective. And one of those things is objective. Which mm-hmm. one do you think is
0: which? Um, subjective would be production. And now it's performance performance. Is subjective. Okay.
1: Yes. Think about it. Production is technical in nature. Okay. Yep. So here are the aspects of technic the technical part from the production. So it's the video, it's the video quality, mm-hmm. the audio quality, and then it's the editing. Yes. So the thing is there are objective measurements of how good any of that is. So from the visual standpoint, visual aesthetic, there's like, yes, there's subjective things about aesthetic. What's not subjective is whether your camera is in focus. Mm-hmm. What's not subjective is whether the lighting is well, like, it, like there's good lighting and there's bad lighting. And there's not a lot of subjectivity in that when it comes down to what's acceptable visually. Yeah. yeah. Audio, what's acceptable is not really debatable. It's like, it's pretty objective. It's yeah. like pretty easy to score that. It's It's pretty clear they're what trash audio sounds like. So the thing is, you see how this is less touchy-feely when I say it? Like, it's like, it yeah. makes sense that it's like, okay, there are objective things where that's easy to figure out what is acceptable. Okay. And sure. then what is great is like, there's like not as much subjectivity in there just because of how specific and technical it is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Now what is subjective is performance. Performance comes down to your clarity of communication. Mm -hmm. your confidence and charisma and the emotional connection you build with the audience so the three c's connection charisma and clarity okay so that's performance if what you communicate isn't clear whether that's in the actual speech patterns you have or just again the way that you explain things or the way that you even entertain where like the jokes don't land (laughs) that's bad (laughs) but that's also subjective because there's taste involved and people have to decide if they like how you communicate Okay. Mm-hmm. So if like people don't like how you communicate, there's not a lot you can do about it without being inauthentic. Yeah. But you can polish some aspects of being a better performer, better public speaker, better comedian, but it's still playing to subjectivity mm. and to culture to an extent. Yeah. So you can work on clarity, you can work on being a better communicator, a better speaker, a better presenter but it's still subjective. Mm. Then there is the emotional connection with your audience. That's the really tricky part. And that's mm. growth. And that's over time. I sucked at it when I started. I'm better at it today. Watch my oldest videos. They are trash on all these things I'm talking about. Every level conceivably is like my first 100 videos are garbage. <laughs> that's the point.
2: <laughs> yeah, you yeah. have to
1: make 100 crappy videos. You know? yeah, of course. I talk about that a lot too. So, and then there's um, the... The confidence and charisma. That's something that either you naturally have or you build on it over time.
2: Mm.
1: You now, uh, it could come from your previous career. If you're doing close up magic, there's a level of confidence and charisma one needs to be performative in that way.
2: So yeah. that could be
1: an advantage over somebody who's like, you know, like starting from zero on that is a nervous wreck, like my first 100 videos. So like that's, sure. So, like, yeah, so you see what,
0: it is different going to uh, learning how to perform on camera than on a stage even so there was quite a bit of learning for me too i had to kind of dial it down honestly because i was used to being ah hey you know really big and crazy yeah uh because you have to be on a stage but um yeah i think any any type of drama performance art could kind of help uh but it can help
1: a little it's better than somebody who has no performative experience Mm -hmm. because like that person is just like already too much in their head
0: yeah, totally. But the the beautiful thing about YouTube is that it, it is you in a bedroom looking at a camera by yourself for the most part. So yes, it's not as nerve wracking as being on stage in front of. 30, I learned that
1: very quickly in twenty
0: fifteen. <laughs> How? Tell me about that. What was it so, like when you got on the stage? <laughs> so
1: my first speaking engagement, I think, was at PepCon, and then it was pepcon then it was a smaller event in charlotte and then it was at how design live okay the biggest design conference in the country so oh, like, gotcha. yeah.
0: Big. yeah
1: yeah so like i only got to be on stage three or four times before how design live how design live is where i think I crossed the threshold though of being decent at it mm. like being really good at it and i started to learn how to be good on stage was one thing and But I also started learning how to make really good slides, like slides that people (laughs) like practically wanted to buy from me by the time I got off stage. Like, so I used my background as a designer. I I used my ability to present information. I I used those things. And I also learned the importance of interacting with the audience after you get off stage, even though as an introvert, it's really draining for me. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a way of giving value to those people and yeah. acknowledging them and being grateful. And so like, I think that being a great public speaker, um, and what, one of the other things I learned is I learned to get to know the audience before I go on stage. And I learned to even change and tailor aspects of my talk to mm-hmm. the conversations I had the day before, the day of, Smart. Uh, yeah. and to find and make sure that there are people who show up for me and are in the front row or in this stage, this side of the stage and that side of the stage so that I could just focus on the handful of people that are rooting for me and that yeah. and i would perform for them and Smart. the rest of the audience would feel it so i like i hacked um i hacked that so that i'd also had to stop being self-conscious the way i stopped being self-conscious was similar to my content i was like everything i do is for the benefit of the audience mm-hmm. so it's more important to deliver for them than to be worried about being embarrassed so yeah. that was kind of like my hack to get out of my head was this is for them mm-hmm. and it's worth suffering embarrassment if i change one person's career
0: Totally. It just takes a lot of stage time to get used to it anyways, but you just got to let that thing be your home when you get up there. And uh,
1: I turned it into my jungle gym.
0: <laughs> I love
1: that. <laughs> it's playground. It's like, yep, it's like, all right, it's like, it's it's time to get up here and to just have fun with it and okay. roll with the punches and like make a fool of myself. Let's go.
0: So I've got some uh, some questions here. Um, yeah, that I just want to start rattling off that I'm really curious on your thoughts yeah, um, so let's just get into some YouTube talk. Um, should you have multiple channels or should you keep your ideas in one and make it all part of your brand? Um, Depends. I have, I've been considering this myself with this channel, doing a clips channel and then a full length podcast channel. Um, Depends on
1: audience psychology and also yeah. viewer expectations. I believe in viewer expectations more than anything, which is why if you can't turn a live stream into like an event,
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or if you're not the big over the top personality where people are showing up for your personality exclusively, and the thing is, you know if you are and you know if you aren't. You know, uh, we can't <laughs> yeah. all be Felix. So the the, yep. the thing is, That's I, I believe pie, by the way, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I believe in conditioning expectations and then not code switching on your audience, and I believe on giving them what they showed up for. I think even Mr. Beast said, "Don't make, don't publish a video your audience didn't um, ask for." So yeah. like. I think that if you say, well, I'm bored, then you have to find an outlet and it might be TikTok or it might be Twitch. You have to find an outlet if you're bored. That's not the audience's problem. So I believe in putting the audience first. That's So if I make a new channel, it's because it means that I can either build a new audience, which people underestimate the value of just building a new audience for Mm -hmm. a a different aspect of who you are, your personality. You aren't all things to all people in your friend group and you don't try to be. So you don't, like, people think that their YouTube channel needs to be everything they love all at once in their personality, when they can't admit that what they really want is they want to be validated for every aspect of themselves. Mm. And that's why they're trying to do it. And they're trying to be (laughs) validated by as many people as possible. That's the reason people are afraid to start new channels between me and you, Dave. People want to be validated by as many people as possible for anything that they do. And once you become a YouTuber, you get addicted to view validation. (laughs) And so they want the cheap dopamine of the pat on the head for showing up and Uh then when the audience doesn't do that, they get depressed. So the easy answer is if you're making a a new thing, that is Mm -hmm. not something people have come to expect from you, not something that you're known for or isn't in alignment with the current needs, wants and desires of your existing audience, Mm -hmm. give it its own platform. And the good news is this, you get to start another brand and build Uh another component to your business Uh that might be equally or more valuable or might be an exit later uh-huh.
0: So, like, it's an opportunity. It's not a problem. Yeah, totally. I'm wanting to do... I'm selfishly going to say this. I'm I'm starting an entertainment channel. I have this robot that I've built. Uh, it's me. I wear a costume. And so I'll actually superimpose myself in the shot. It's a reaction channel. Uh, we react together. This. So I'll do, like, an actual authentic reaction myself with no mask. And then... I'll edit it and then in post and then I'll shoot myself in the costume sitting next. I love this reacting so I can kind of write in jokes. I love (laughs) this
1: so much because it (laughs) breaks the reaction format and it makes your reaction videos worth watching versus anybody else's. Even if you've seen their reactions, there's a built in reason to. I love this. So this is fantastic. (laughs) And by the way, this sets you up for a TikTok career too. This sets you up for a TikTok career too. Yeah. Because then the robot has its own character and therefore the robot can react to the internet
0: itself. Exactly. So the joke is that I need an assistant to help me with my YouTube channel. So I build this robot and his name is D maze. And so that's the joke is that, but, but it's like an Eddie Murphy situation where everybody kind of knows it's me. Um, I love it. That's obviously nothing to do with gear, filmmaking. It's a completely No, it's creative, everything. though. I love it. So no, I love it. It gives you an outlet. Yeah, exactly. And I think it has a little bit more legs than doing reviews anyways. So. Yeah. um, So I should just start a fresh channel anyways with this, right? I mean, it's completely But oh, You should different.
1: just make a fresh. It's reactions. Anything is it takes you out of the pigeonhole. Of, and by the way, don't necessarily, mm-hmm. like, don't insist on porting your existing. Audience over to this. Well, uh, yeah, can I don't... know it exists. Sure, but build a new audience from scratch. I'm dead serious. Okay. Does that mean I need to start a new Twitter account and everything, or just like for this? I would. I would treat it like another brand. I would treat it like another business. That's how I look at YouTube. I'm like, uh I still need to do that for Zenbuster Music. Like, uh but uh-huh. I'm like Zenbuster Music. I'm literally getting an LLC for Zenbuster Music as a company because I'm treating it like a so like. For those of you who don't know, if you go to YouTube.com slash Zenbuster I started a new YouTube channel. It's a faceless YouTube channel. You, It's very hard to even associate it with me. And it's lo-fi music, but it's all copyright free. And we made it in-house. Like, my producer, Frost FM, made it. I did the branding. I hired um, people on Fiverr to do the um, illustrations for our, our lo-fi girl. I based the character design on my sisters. It's, like, really- <laughs> Yeah, it's really dope. And like, I put a lot of money into this, by the way. I've already put thousands of dollars into this already, like of my own money, because I'm building it as its own company. Uh, uh, We have like apparel and merchandise. I'm like, I'm thinking the whole thing and the royalty income from Spotify and Apple. The entire point is building out a whole new brand where Mm -hmm. you don't have to care about who Roberto Blake is to support this brand. And that's that's the entire point. And and the good news is it also gives something to the creator community because it's copyright-free music, and it's good. I'm looking good. at it
0: right now. It looks great. Are you doing the artwork on that?
1: Uh, I do a lot of the Photoshop on that. The illustrations, the character stuff is mm-hmm. I hire someone on Fiverr, but then I do all the graphic cool. design. So I do all the backgrounds. I do that. I even do the That's After fun, Effects man. animation. The After Effects animation stuff is me.
0: All right. I'll put – we'll play um, – I, I didn't I enable – uh, Zoom to do sharing yet. This is a new computer, so I have I have to grant access, which means I'd have to quit this Zoom call to Don't share it, it with you. But we'll play this on the on the video here. It's really cool. You're at one point one. 4k sub so you can monetize now right um we are at
1: 2600 uh, hours of watch time so we need a little bit more okay. once i post um some of the new stuff we released we released um the zodiac uh so we have the lo-fi zodiac i have to upload the tracks and the one hour extensions sure. of that i think in about a month or two it'll put us over the top uh, unless one of them goes big cool. or unless you know people decide to like watch after they see this um but like the way that the um music channels work and with the long extensions where people play it in the background, it's actually not that hard to accumulate a certain amount of watch time. So the thing is I I'm pretty confident we'll be there before the summer.
0: I thought it was I thought the threshold was a thousand subscribers though. Is it's a
1: thousand that... subscribers and four thousand hours and... of watch time and four thousand okay. hours of watch time. So yeah. like a lot of people don't know that. So we're still yeah. not
0: there on this podcast yet, but we'll get there because we have long watch time on these
1: exactly so that's like podcast and music channels lend themselves well to uh, accumulating a lot of that watch time and all it takes with music is one video going big we have one video that did a thousand hours of the watch time itself so dude that's amazing yeah so like yeah music um is the backbone of youtube in my opinion anyway like people don't realize that really yeah but you had other questions i'm sure and i've got time so let's
0: do it um At what point are you too specific with your niche and are you hurting potential growth by sticking to that niche?
1: So that's a good question. I think it's when you've like exhausted your own, when you've exhausted your own interest and passion in um, a series of topics Mm -hmm. and you don't have runway to expand to another branch or something like that, or you're just creatively burnt out, then it's gone far too narrow. And the whole point of niching down isn't really for me, really about topics. For me, it's about the culture of an audience. So like, you know, I think of it, I tell people like, here's how you need to think of niching down. You can be friends with anybody in school that you want, but you got to pick a lunch table to sit at. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Like, so you got to, you got to make a call. And the thing is people are like, oh, but I could sit here one day and I could sit here the next day. And you know what, and you know what's going to happen? You're not going to have deep lifelong friendships yeah, that get you true. through high school you're not going to have people who are ride or die for you in high school <laughs> and that you go off to college with if you do that you're not going to have depth yeah. of relationship and you're not going to have depth of relationship with your audience if you play around with that
0: who did you sit next to i sat next to the band nerds and the uh the creatives <laughs>
1: uh, like i think my group was the leftover outcasts
0: so. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much same here we talk about the playstation portable and uh you know we would
1: talk about anime, and we would like uh, <laughs> play Magic: The Gathering and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, you you would have been in uh, my circle for sure. Uh, yeah, I still <laughs> so, play Magic.
1: I still play Magic. on oh, really? uh, uh Arena. Uh, yeah, I'm like freaking platinum tier.
0: I'm do you have some? Tier. Do you have some cards from the from that time period? Like the nineties? I and stuff?
1: have them in storage. I have my Yu-Gi-Oh cards still. I have a lot of those. but I have more of those in storage. Mine are worth actually some decent money
0: now i um I'm really upset i I had a stash of OG you know first run Pokemon cards because I'm that I am the the generation of Pokemon so. I have
1: 1996 Japanese edition Pokemon cards in storage assuming we haven't ruined them or like whatever like and I'm like really pissed because like we, we had good stuff. But it's like, um, I have to, my storage units in North Carolina have to like make oh, another geez. run to finalize that. <laughs> yeah. Mine are, um,
0: I've lost them. I don't know where they went. My mom might have sold them or something. I don't know.
1: But I found a lot of my Yu Gi Oh stuff. I haven't found, I'm still looking for is one Yu-Gi-Oh, of my decks. I had a.
0: Is that popping off yet? I feel like. Uh, it's
1: been popping off and it's back. It's like, Yu-Gi-Oh. it's doing really good in YouTube. Yu Gi Oh, Yu Gi YouTubers are doing fantastic.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I remember remember Yu-Gi-Oh! was fun. It was fun to play it. I played Pokemon, but I think Yu-Gi-Oh! actually playing the actual game, not collecting the cards. Exactly, that's where that, yeah. It was more fun to play Yu-Gi-Oh! to me. Yu-Gi-Oh!
1: and Magic, yeah. It's like, and both of those are doing, they're crushing it in the YouTube scene, they're crushing it in the collectibles space. Pokemon is like, with Logan Paul and stuff like that, that's hyped up and that's like spread across the board because even casual people who aren't nerds yeah, get, got into that, but like the nerds, yeah, were Yu-Gi-Oh <laughs> and Magic, and like Yu-Gi-Oh is slightly more mainstream than Magic, even though Magic is older, um, is and still old. popular. It's still popular, but Yu-Gi-Oh is mainstream because anime is and because of the era of kids WB yeah. at the time. So like, totally. um, so it's like it's the more mature version of like people who like felt too childish about like Pokemon at the time. They like, <laughs> they got to grow into Yu-Gi-Oh, yeah. so um yeah but like a lot of my stuff as far as my cards on that stuff those collectibles i still have a lot of that stuff some of it's worth some really good money it's crazy and i'm buying and holding first editions of every release now just like add my extra like because it's like oh i'll just spend 60 bucks buy a box and like leave a couple of packs sealed and like sit on that yeah oh smart i need to start doing that for pokemon but like pokemon collecting has gotten like the prices has gotten
0: yeah you think it'll it'll probably burst and crash in the next what I have to do or...
1: is when COVID's over is I have to go raid flea markets where people don't know any better <laughs> yes. and the thing is I have to go back to uh, my old town and talk to all my normie friends who aren't on the <laughs> internet
0: and yeah normie friends uh, muggles is what we call them yeah uh... I have to go
1: I have to go like like to like all my muggle friends and like raid <laughs> like raid their basements and be like yeah i'll give you like 50 bucks for your whole binder it's like 50 they're like bucks. oh I'm really
0: like, 50 bucks
1: yeah yeah it's like or it's like oh i'll give you 150 for the whole binder like 150 wow <laughs> it's like yeah it's like dude you're not gonna sit there and go through these and sit on the internet and yeah. to, just to find out that they're not worth crap it's like you're I not had, gonna do
0: that i probably had thousands of dollars worth of lego it's like original 90s lego sets and we sold them when i was a teenager and we made like probably $500 and i wonder if i held on to that stuff if it would have gone oh up oh my god it's like old legos from the 90s like i i had all the lego studio sets do you remember those lego studio? yes i do i remember I had... lego
1: studio and lego technic
0: yep and uh i had a, the original lego mindstorms which was like my dream you build like little robots and stuff it was my so friend much. chris
1: perillo has an entire room of nothing but lego sets
0: Dude, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, his kid Jedi. Like, yes, he named his daughter Jedi. Oh wow! Like, yeah, she has like the like, yeah, she has the best childhood. I, have, I swear.
0: I have a friend, yeah, that named his son Anakin, but I've never heard uh, Jedi. Yeah.
1: So. Um. So yeah, Chris Perl is an OG tech YouTuber. Wow. Yeah. That's sick. So he was like one of the first tech YouTubers.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh old OG tech YouTubers out there that a lot of people might not. No, because it's just yeah. Have you
1: ever gotten to hang with Soldier Knows Best? No. Yeah, like there's a lot of OG YouTubers. Like when when uh when when events are back, we'll
0: you have, have to introduce reunion. me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when do sponsorships hurt your brand, and and can they kind of start to, you know, dilute your content?
1: When you're when the brands have more equity in your channel than your audience does, it starts to become a little bit of a problem if you don't have the leverage to assert yourself. And the problem is also when creators, as much as I know there are smaller content creators who like want brand deals to validate, legitimize them. And they're like, oh, well this will lead to other opportunities and stuff like that. The reality is saying yes to things early in your career um, is bad a lot of times because you have the least experience and the least amount of leverage Mm -hmm. and um, you desire the most validation. Which means there's no, there's almost no, when you're a small content creator, there's almost no such thing as a good deal to Mm. be very real with you. Like when you're, when you're early in your career, there's almost no such thing as a good deal. You, you like in hindsight, you will always look back and know that you should have asked for more or that it didn't come out the way you would have hoped or the brand asked for too much creative control. The main thing is to maintain creative control at all costs. And that might mean saying no to money or saying no at all. Like, so yeah. So, creative control is about respecting the relationship you have with your audience, and the brand needs to uh, infringe on that relationship as little as possible. That's mm-hmm. what, no matter what the amount of money is, that's the beginnings of a good deal is when they're asserting the least control and the mm-hmm. least amount of time taken up in your content. And when yeah. they can, another, the other note of a good deal is when the brand and what they provide enhance the content versus mm-hmm. take away from it. Mm-hmm. Where like you'd want to get to a place to where it wouldn't be possible without them. Sure. That's when it's a good deal for your audience and when your audience will support and respect it is like, OK, you can only do this because of the experience, access or resources they provided you mm-hmm. that to make a better video
0: for me. That's worth it. Um, There's kind of a I'm just going to talk about it because it's kind of a topic right now because Peter sure. and Maddie brought it up. Our tutorials yeah. dead? It's it's kind of this. No. Yeah, no, it's not. Uh Jevin no. posted a tweet the other day and everybody was like, No, it's not. Um no. I think Maddie and Pete are in a different stage of their career, you know, as YouTubers. Retrospectively
1: for them, for them, tutorials are throwaway videos because they're at a point in their career to where if something doesn't get a hundred thousand views in this amount of time, it's basically worthless to them, but it's not worthless to the people consuming it. Exactly, and I'm not saying that that's not a shade toward them. I'm just saying they're at a point in their career to where it doesn't reflect well on them to get less than a certain amount of views. Yeah, but that's where they are in their career. But you transition to a point in your career to where you like you're building that. Like, mm-hmm. um, but, but there's a point where all right. So if you decide to be a mainstream YouTuber, which I think happens to people who get over a million subscribers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you're almost purely an entertainment play, even if you start as an education play. Mm. Uh, i think that we've seen that even with the the finance channels that i love so much uh graham kevin and they still provide great information especially meet kevin i love
0: Meet kevin yeah like they, did you they watch pro- sarah's video by the way his breakdown yes.
1: oh yes 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 oh I, my gosh. I i i try i had to close out uh amazon immediately <laughs> i was after. like
0: i want that rolling kit man that's yeah
1: sick. i was like no
0: i'm not nope nope can't do it <laughs> like put the credit card down roberto like yeah <laughs> the I definitely am going to do the teleprompter on the camera thing though, so that I can like, I'm my actual camera is above the laptop right now. Um, I'm you're looking at my webcam, but, yeah. uh, I would love to be able to just look directly into the lens with the, teleprompter.
1: I have a 49 inch monitor and the way my setup works, I cannot do that at this desk, but in the future, um, there'll be some kind of build where that makes sense to do. Yeah. And I'll do that. Cause like, I do like that idea. um, Anyway, I will say. Well, I will say on the point of tutorials, though, is like, okay, if you're if you're a million plus subscribe channel, tutorials are this like single serving, uh, piece of content that's a one and done. and It's not really about you and personality, and it's like, and they could set another priority, and it's an investment to sit down. Like Matt yeah. and Pete at a million subscribers, for them to feel for their brand deals and for their, their personal satisfaction of people paying attention to what they've made at this point in their careers they have to make entertaining content. Mm-hmm. Tutorials that make entertaining you the priority are less valuable as tutorials.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You,
1: you have to you have to make things not boring, sure, for people to learn them. But the thing is, you do have to learn them. It's not uh, like to be, like if this is your, if this is gonna be your job, it's not essential that you have fun in the process of learning this skill. Yeah, Ask anyone who's ever opened After Effects. Like <laughs> it's, you do not have to, enjoy the process of acquiring this power. The fun <laughs> will come in deploying this power later in the form of force lightning. Like yeah. when you finish the tutorial properly and you can add force lightning to your thing, that will be what feels good. <laughs> what will not feel good is sitting there learning all the bloody particle physics and all of the things you have to do for forking and like, it's just like, no, that's not fun. That's not uh-huh. fun. And it's not meant to be fun. But. Teaching you it is meant to teach you the thing that you need to do. Uh, So it's like, it's not always going to be fun. And I think that the problem with YouTube as a culture is it's conditioned everybody to believe that every aspect of everything they do should always be enjoyable. And mm -hmm. that's not realistic either. Working out is not going to feel that way. I guarantee you that this career is not going to feel that way. And then when they don't feel good about something, it's amplified by the false expectation that has been set of you should always be having fun. Mm-hmm. That's why when I teach things, I try to be grounded in that realism of you need discipline because you're not always going to feel like it. Everyone keeps asking me Roberto, how do you stay motivated to do any of this? How do you do any of this I'm like when motivation fails you, discipline won't. This has to be done. This is a commitment. How you feel about it is not really relevant to the fact that you have a responsibility.
0: Yeah 100%. So that's what
1: so that's why I feel about tutorial content. yeah, I don't think it's dead. I just think I think that once you become a mainstream YouTuber, your goals change. When you are coming up, tutorial content is great because nobody knows who you are and nobody cares, but you can provide you you can provide utility value and you have this great search engine, the biggest one, like backing you. The biggest the two biggest search engines in the world backing you when you make tutorial content and no one knows who you are, you can build a foundation and that feels fantastic. But once you transition to a higher tier of YouTube, the, ed- the value that people provide in education gives way to entertainment because mainstream and broad audience YouTube is purely an entertainment play and YouTube is mostly an entertainment platform. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, mm-hmm. that's how it is. So the thing is, like, tutorial content isn't dead unless you want a million subscribers or have a million subscribers. Mm. If you want a million subscribers, it's very unlikely for you to get there with tutorial content and even if you did, even if you did, you'll have a million subscribers just like uh, I have half a million and you look at Chris Doe, you look at if you are going to focus on giving education to people over entertainment, look at the view to sub ratio on my channel, Chris Doe's channel, SciShow, Crash Course. There's not a correlation between views and subscribers. Even in entertainment channels, that's not always true anyway. Yeah. But it'll feel closer to that, which is why people believe in view to subscriber ratios because entertainment YouTube has taught them to believe that view to subscriber ratios matter and exist. Algorithmically, yeah. they mean nothing. And I've heard that from YouTube directly that view to subscriber ratios mean nothing and they're trash and it doesn't work that way. So I you're have,
0: saying if you have a million subs and you get a million views, that's healthy. Is that what you're saying?
1: No, I'm saying that that's, no, I'm saying that, that has well, I mean, no
0: correlation. Uh, people yeah. believe that, but I'm, I'm saying just, there's
1: no correlation.
0: Yeah, I'm just explaining what view to sub ratio is. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like people will look at, okay, if you have a million subscribers, then you should have at least uh, 100,000, 200,000 views per upload. It's like, it doesn't work that way.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: Just because people subscribe to your channel doesn't mean that they care about this topic or want to learn this thing today or need to learn this thing today or need exactly. to learn it or want to learn it at all. Even with entertainment channels, look at PewDiePie, he has Felix has 100 million subscribers and he gets like, what, two to six million uh, <laughs> views and upload, which is not bad, by the way, at all. No, but Mr. Beast beats him on every upload, if you think about it. But they're doing different types of content. He's doing more sustainable content. He can do it every day. Mr. Beast can upload, what, twice a month, once a month. So yeah. is the difference in that um, even though they share an audience pool. But you know it's just a whole different thing. If you look at it, I get the same views as Gary Vaynerchuk sometimes and he has 3 million subscribers. It's down to what's the concentrated pool of audience around just a topic, not even mm-hmm. an individual. When it becomes an individual, that's when you're skewing into that personality-driven like thing. And the closer you get to a million, it starts to become about that for people. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying yeah. that there's like a moral obligation there, but I'm like, but the thing is, to get views at a certain point, if you want to be a bigger mainstream channel, then you end up starting doing this entertainment shtick with your personal brand where it becomes very self-referential and it becomes very much about people liking you to like you. So it, that's the point where YouTube becomes a popularity contest. Yeah. And the thing is, I don't like that for me. I'm fine with it for whoever wants that. Like- I like suck it up and even though it's sometimes disheartening, I suck it up and I just take the views I get because it's like those 10,000 people that show up for that thing need that thing when they need it and they totally. might and then it might be more people later, it might be whatever.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm
1: like, because it should be more at least I mean, from my perspective, I'm financially not dependent on how YouTube performs
2: mm-hmm.
1: which I mean we could circle back to at the very end if you want. but like since I'm not financially dependent on how YouTube performs. Mm -hmm. I have the luxury of putting the audience first. That's great. And I'm not saying other people don't. I'm saying the way they do it is to entertain them.
0: And I can put the audience possible too.
1: Right. I can put as much utility into the world as possible because the thing is the world isn't lacking entertainment. It is lacking in utility.
0: Yeah. I, so see, I have been a gear reviewer or whatever for three years now and I'm ready to just be an entertainer. So that's fine. I love that for you. When I was at Indie Mogul, I was like, all right, let's get this thing to three mil. I wanted to push for entertainment. And I had this, this idea of like YouTuber versus other YouTuber. The dream would be to get Maddie and Peter in a warehouse and like have actors and cameras and like an audience and then make them shoot a short film and then they an audience watches the films without them knowing i would love that without them knowing that peter and Maddie are in the back room seeing their reaction i'm like so what did you not like about this one uh you know the way that was shot was kind of crappy and then peter's like no you know (laughs) i love this
1: i love this so much i like this would be this'd be great. This is like, this is gold right here. You should really do this when the pandemic's over. Like this is like, (laughs)
0: well, that was um, the idea, but I I love uh, Peter and Maddie.
1: By the way, if no one realizes like I'm a big fan of Peter and Maddie, me too. I'm just also realistic about the industry. So anything I said, just take it as like, Hey, these are people like I actually know and like a lot. They're at a stage in their career to where they get to be wildly entertaining because they have that in them. Like yeah. Peter did up close magic and did all kinds of things. Like they yep. have the charisma to be that. Um, and they should be that totally. there are plenty of people who can make gear tutorials like, or do like, they uh, justine, justine Justine's yeah. a
0: great example, right? She's exactly. been, on, she's been in this game for, for the whole time. Uh, just making incredible content. That's extremely entertaining and easy to watch. I mean, she's, Bingo. she's a, a total personality, like exactly. in another, in another she's world, the OG, she's, And then, yeah, at 30, 40 years ago, she would have just been like a super famous actress probably, you know, probably
1: like, but behind the scenes, she would have like been like angling for angling for director. Um, Exactly. Exactly. uh,
0: She's, she's wonderful. I just found after kind of experimenting with entertainment in the camera gear niche, I was, I just realized like, this is too small of a niche. Like we're talking hundreds of thousands of people that will be maybe a million or two, but Like it just didn't seem worth it. And people would get kind of angry at me because I was I wasn't taking it seriously enough. You know, I don't I don't know. So that's why I'm excited about getting into a completely different world and just going all in. that's more scalable, like entertainment.
1: And it like from a viewer perspective, entertainment's more scalable. You can look at YouTube. It's like there's there's no I don't think there's any education YouTuber with 10 million subscribers. So that proves the point. Like I don't think there's a purely education like I guess Marquez, right? sort of. His is cinematic, like it's cinematic tech content and it is still it's informative but it's entertainment. People watch it. Linus. Linus might be the exception. Although they still It's entertaining as hell though. It, it's entertaining as hell. Linus is the only person I think that has figured out the magic formula to that balance.
2: Mm-hmm. And sure. the
1: thing is, I don't know if it can be replicated because his business is very hard to replicate. What they've done with Linus Media Group, And that's the point. He built Linus Media Group. That's yeah. the reason he can do that. Like,
0: I think I heard he has like seven or eight writers full-time. So. Yeah.
1: So like he has he has the new business model of what it takes to produce a show in the 21st century versus what Warner brothers and stuff have.
2: Yeah. You see,
1: he has that. He has the, he has pioneered the 21st century. Linus, Linus is my favorite creative entrepreneur because he's not just a YouTuber. He is a true creative entrepreneur because he built a modern media company. Yeah, He has the blueprint for a modern media company. The problem is everything he went through to build that. It'd be very difficult to replicate, and it's a very high risk venture to do. Totally. But he has the perfect blueprint.
0: A hundred percent. I mean, it's 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 pretty amazing to watch. It's kind of like yeah, like you said, it's like a, a thirty years ago he would have been on Discovery Channel with his own show, and it would have been mm-hmm. like MythBusters or something, you know. Like he
1: is, but he would have ended up owning the IP.
0: Owning his own channel on, on cable TV. He would have
1: owned the IP, kind of like how Oprah owned her IP. Like she eventually bought Harper Productions and all that. That's what life I didn't know think.
0: that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah.
1: He would have that. ended up owning the IP, which is mm. the key. But creators today start out owning their
0: IP. So what do you think for, again, uh, our, our audience is mostly people similar to myself. So it's filmmakers and freelance creators, photographers, stuff like that. So if they want to get into YouTube, the kind of a couple of years ago, it would have been okay. Start reviewing stuff. Talk about camera gear. Talk about you know how to be a good filmmaker. Should they really just kind of search their heart and see like, okay, do I want to be an entertainer? Do I want to use these skills that I have as a freelance shooter to do something that has nothing to do with filmmaking? Like,
1: figure out. I would say figure out who you are as a person and what you need creatively <laughs> to be validated, and understand that about yourself, and then That's decide. Really good. And then I would also look at whether it's financially viable. So, like, I would use the Ikigai framework. I would look at here's what I'm passionate about and here's – and what I'm passionate about is basically what I could do if failure is not even a remote possibility. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand that. That may not be what ends up manifesting, but you at least need to understand what that would look like. Then you need to, like, objectively look at your skill sets and then look at whether you have the skill sets to support that passion and that vision. Then you need to look at the market. You need to look at what people will pay for. And then you need to look at like the framework I laid out of here are the five real ways to make money, the -hmm. five realistic ways to make money are you can have services. So are you going to start a local photography or filmmaking business that supports your venture in the meantime? Or are you going to go work for a company? So that's services, that's off of those skills. Are you going to do that and then do this on the side and that's going to finance it? And are you willing to do that indefinitely if this doesn't support itself? Are you going to be subsidized by brands? How much of the brands are you money are you willing to take and give up any of your creative control? How much equity are you willing to give them versus your audience? And what I mean by equity versus that is like, if 50% of your videos are sponsored, then mm-hmm. it's 50-50 between your audience and the brands which is a for me that's a little uncomfortable yeah. um so you have to you have to look at something like that then you, or like okay is my content and this passion a good vehicle for selling things cuz then i have e-commerce and affiliate marketing as options as well and mm-hmm. then like how big of an audience would i need to be supported by any royalties, whether it's YouTube or otherwise. You need to understand the market Mm -hmm. and you need to understand where money comes from and how to get it. You have to realize whether that's in alignment with your passion and whether your passion can be profitable and whether your skills allow for it and to what extent. And you need to be realistic about your skills. You also then need to be concerned with how does this leave the world if I pursue this? If I pursue this, does it do anything that benefits other people in the world in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm. And am I okay with that? Am I okay with that in the form of entertainment, aspiration, like giving them something escapism? Or uh, does it, is it more meaningful me to me for something to be utility and to change people's lives uh, in some way career-wise or financially? Like what is, what is it that I want my legacy to be? And it's fine whether that's inspiration, entertainment, or education. You know, it's just unrealistic to expect that you're going to accomplish all three especially yeah. in your early career when the decision-making process. So the thing is, I would try to understand where my life is and where my skills and career are in this framework mm-hmm. and try to act accordingly. What I will say that's not as philosophical or heady is I'll give you like maybe three quick rules. Have an entertaining component to your content, even from the beginning, even if it's education, even if it's utility. Yeah. From those photo, Jared Poland's a great example of oh, that. He's, you know, he's Peter even in the early days with tutorials, Peter made you excited to pick up a camera. Like he made you not feel ashamed or intimidated. And he didn't talk down to you. He wasn't the pretentious wedding photographer, you know, <laughs> yeah. like that's what made Peter McKinnon um, amazing. Maddie, when he had travel feels made you excited about the idea that you can pick up a camera and go somewhere in the world and make something amazing.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I'm, the, I'm not much of a fan of Maddie that I remember travel feels yeah me too see see, (laughs) i'm og i'm for real i'm not a i'm not a fake fan like you see um (laughs) but yeah i love these guys and so like i would like i would look at that i would look at like what is the feeling that i'm going to create in my audience and the thing is with marquez he has an entertaining like he's low he's low key but he's entertaining you see so, like, you don't have to yeah. be an extrovert. You don't have to always look at entertaining as extroversion.
0: Caleb Kayla Pike is is pretty chill. Exactly. You know, you know I feel yeah. that I'm
1: that when I'm not in a rant or a <laughs> Gerald rampage. Undone, Gerald Undone, for sure. Gerald Undone, same thing. So yeah. the thing is, they you can be entertaining and you can be clever and you can still provide value if you want to go that route. Or the thing is, if you don't want to pigeonhole yourself, you can yeah. look at what uh, Gene from Potato Jet does.
0: Yes. He's a he loves, riot. He's, he's a riot. Yeah. Like
1: you can't get that anywhere else. There's nowhere else to go to get that. So yeah, there's
0: Kai W would be close, I guess, but yes,
1: Kai, Kai is amazing. Like, so he's there's, so like his humor, he has that dry British humor. So like, it's <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's a very wry humor. So like you have, you have to figure out what's interesting and unique about yourself. And then the exaggeration of that is the entertaining component. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's like one thing that they can action on Totally is really like, okay, then here's the other thing. Look at the unique things that are about your personality that can be Easter eggs in your content that allow you to stack something else into your brand. Mm-hmm. If I had been more clever and if I had not been insecure in the early days of my brand, I would have capitalized more on my love for Star Wars. And it would have built, it would have given me more to build off of outside of the things that I do yeah. to incorporate and make the aesthetic and the uh, vibe of Star Super Wars fans. part of my brand. Exactly. It's and the a... thing is, it would have been unique. And it also would have given me access to a bigger fan base yep. than the people interested in just what I make. Because then they, w- they would have felt there's a larger fan base to pull from from Star Wars. And that's totally. just an example. So there's like something in your personality um, that you can find that gives you access to a greater, larger community. Yep. You need to play on that. You, you really 100%. do. 100%.
0: Yeah, that's all. Uh, Pat Flynn, we had him on the show. And it was right when he really Superfans the book. And uh, that's one of the things that he talks about. You know, for him, it's Back to the Future. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So. So there's that. And then the other the last piece I would say is build be willing to build other things to support your passion that you aren't as passionate about. Mm. Meaning that you could decide like your your passion should be the thing that you want to do.
0: Here we are. I'm hosting a podcast for Polar Pro. (laughs) Yeah. So I enjoy I enjoy this very much, but it's also a job for me and it helps support my other ventures.
1: Bingo. And that's my point. Be willing to say, you know what? I will work in the industry. I will work for another YouTuber or I'll work for a company like Polar Pro or VidIQ or TubeBuddy or whatever. So I'll either work for another creator or I'll work for an ad agency or I'll do this. Like if you're not going to build another business, like a, a photography business that's successful or film for local real estate people or whatever it is you have to do to make money, it's like be willing to have a sustainable income. That's not YouTube Mm because I don't really think anyone should be a full-time YouTuber. They should be a full-time creator. Mm -hmm. I think that being beholden to a platform is a death sentence to creativity. Mm -hmm. I think that being beholden to brands is a death sentence to creativity. I think even being beholden to the whims of your audience is a death sentence to creativity. Mm -hmm. I think the only way to preserve your creativity and your own integrity is to have uh, the ability to be financially independent in what you do and people can support it or not because you're still going to pay your rent or mortgage. Sure. So I think you need to, for me, it's the diverse revenue streams that give me that, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's important. It also means I can take a break when I need to. Yeah. So I, I think that a lot of people want to rush to getting monetized, getting a certain amount of AdSense and quit their day job. I'm against that. I'm for somebody Maybe scaling back their day job, uh, or if they quit their day job, it's like okay, do you and then yeah. and then free yeah do you do, do quit your day job and freelance, and then when you don't have clients, be willing to get in your car and do like Uber or DoorDash or whatever yeah. to cash flow to cash flow, mm-hmm. and I'm like have no ego about anything. If mm-hmm. you are that committed to the things you're passionate about existing in the world, if you're if you want the things that you want to create to exist in the world. They can't be financially tethered to other people's decisions.
0: Yeah, 100%. So,
1: and, and they are financially tethered to other people's decisions mm-hmm. if you're trying to live off of them. So the thing is, I think until you scale the other components of business that I talk about enough to where things become truly self-sustaining, but you don't always need people to love what you do. Yeah. Like, I think that you have to be willing to say, I'll do something I don't necessarily hate. Yeah. To make money and to set myself up.
0: I mean, that's exactly where I am right now. I'm working with my cousins who are multimillionaires. They're doing photography education. I do all their video stuff now full-time. And I've had this meme reaction channel in my brain for four years. And this is the first time where I've I've been able to take a break from my YouTube channels that I've been hosting and really think about like, what do I really want to do? And so now I've carved out about two hours a day that I could work on this other channel Uh, While also having a full time job that allows me to, you know, be a sole provider for a wife and kids. So
1: financial security, it matters, it matters. And the reason I talk about money on my channel so much and how to make it is because realistically, you need that security. Mm. Because it's really hard to be creative when you're sitting there stressing about everything else. Your <laughs> mental and emotional bandwidth is entirely consumed with bills and debt yep. and responsibility.
0: And you say yes to everything that you do, you shouldn't be saying yes to.
1: You get leveraged. You get taken advantage of. This is how you end up staying a starving artist because it's like mm. you can't get a good deal when you have no leverage. Yeah. And it's why I think no is the most important word for somebody when they're wow. starting out sometimes. It's like because it's a way to set boundaries. It's a way to respect yourself.
0: So, yeah, I mean, just to circle back from where we started, you were talking about all your streams of revenue. Let's kind of finish that up. I, I cut you off. Yeah, yeah so let's
1: finish that up. We can do it in under five minutes and then I've got to definitely run. But yeah,
0: absolutely. Because it's been well over an hour now. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah.
1: So we talked about, uh, like I do well in ad revenue, you know, uh, $20 CPMs. It varies month to month just based on traffic. And my traffic is predicated on like whether I decide to upload that month or not. <laughs> like, sure. yeah, um, what, so, I mean,
0: what is your upload like frequency? It depends on how I feel. Like I mean, I'm trying to it's make sure that feel? I do.
1: I'm trying to make sure I do at least a video a week and a live stream on the weekend. And that's where I've been at lately. And like um, the first two months of the year, I did really well on ad revenue. I did about 6,000 on ad revenue between ad revenues, super chats and everything. But I was also uploading pretty more frequently. I was uploading one to two times a week and I was live streaming um, once a week. So that did That's really great. well. But in the last like month or 30 days, I've literally done a live stream once a week or even every other week and no uploads is until just recently. So like I went more than 30 days without a proper upload, but uh, that brought ad revenue down to 2,700 for the month. But that's
0: okay. Like, I, I feel like a lot of people beat themselves up. It's like, oh man, i haven't uploaded in a month. It's like, so yeah. this is a lifelong career. So you don't yeah. have to like, stress out about it too much. But I, I hear you, you know, it, it's not it's not your frequent uh, schedule. So
1: yeah, but I had to do that for like physical and mental health reasons. And I was like, know, just doing too much. I was doing too much. Um, because I do stuff outside of YouTube. Um, And then I was also still doing all of this while working on the music channel and the music brand and Mm -hmm. doing all of that. Um, I have people on my team, but not for my YouTube channel. I have them in my business. So, I have Awesome Creator Academy and Create Awesome Media. Uh, Awesome Creator Academy is a coaching and education business. Right now, we don't have courses, but I'm developing them. I'm developing, uh, we have like other products. We mostly have a membership training group and we have one-on-one calls with me and then we brought on another coach that also do one-on-one calls because she also helps with the group coaching. We do two cool. live trainings a week. We do a Q&A once a week and we do a like webinar training once a week for our paying members. So like that's really a lot of a commitment. Yeah. That's like a big commitment. And that does really well. Um, but we also have with Create Awesome Media, we're doing services for content creators, which we just started to promote that more now and we're going to be. Um, And like the people who've done stuff to them before, like we were dumb and we didn't get like the, like we didn't ask to, we haven't put their stuff out there, like which is why we don't have a portfolio because like we've been doing work for people, but oh, yeah, we made your media kit, but we can't like publicly show your media kit and your rates and we didn't, we don't have an NDA or release or whatever. Like, so we have to, like, we can't show the work that we've done. So like now we have to do more work, Mm -hmm. but get permission to say, hey, can we use you in a case study and hey, we'll redact your rates because we make media kits for people is one of our big things is we make media kits for people to get brand deals. Cause you know, I'm very adamant about creators getting paid properly. So we make media kits that can help creators get paid properly, for representing them to brands and showing their analytics properly, what they have to offer. We also do a console with them to help position them properly to have the right information for that when we design it for them and we build everything from scratch.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: uh, we do design work. We do branding and business development for creators. We create awesome media. Uh, we also build people's Squarespace websites for them, which also presents them properly in the world and to their brands and the things like that into to their audience yep. so they can build their newsletters. So they have independence. We want people building newsletters and having websites so that they have something besides what the platforms let them have
2: mm.
1: in terms of access to an audience. So we want creators to be independent. We also want them to get paid. So we are providing the services if they're not technically inclined or creatively inclined in terms of design aesthetic
2: Mm -hmm. to
1: do these things for them, build your Shopify store for e-commerce. You know, if you are in a coaching or education space, build your Kajabi website, which is what I use. So, you know, we, we offer those things right now. That's pretty much the scope of what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wanting to expand that to where if you live in Atlanta or New York, we'll do photography for you,
0: but we're not cheap.
1: Like we're not cheap. Like, (laughs) so that's what we do, create awesome media with Awesome Creator Academy. Like I said, we do the coaching and stuff like that. So, those are like the other two businesses that I have for that in terms of client services work. And then, obviously, when there's speaking to be done, I do public speaking when we can have events. Yeah. You know? So, I'm a paid public speaker.
0: Hopefully, um, hopefully, you'll have a couple this year. If not, definitely next year. So,
1: yeah. Um, you know, don't be surprised if like, it looks like we're going to do Vid Summit in person this year. So, Heck I yeah. assume I'll be returning. Um,
0: I will be there. I will see you there.
1: Yeah. So, so I have, I so I have those things, uh, and then um, building out more e-commerce stuff for myself. We have e-commerce products within awesome creator academy as far as like stuff like the youtube starter kit which is a bundle of templates so that's like you know a big bundle of photoshop assets we're spinning that off now to build um creator template store where we're going to have an entire template store of just bundles of like instead of a 99 Smart. bundle of 99 photoshop files or whatever which is why I currently have is like 100 photoshop files for 99 bucks well, and plus a bunch of other stuff what we're going to do is we're going to like actually start selling individual bundles of new templates that we're making we're not just going to rehash those gonna make new templates like here's a bundle of sports youtube thumbnails here is like a bunch of channel artwork or here's a whole like branding kit for this type of channel for a beauty channel, sports channel, vlogger, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, so people can pay like 10, 15, 20 bucks for different versions of these bundles. We're going to build Twitch overlays. We're going to build like Facebook graphics. So we're going to have like for every platform, we're going to have carousels, Instagram carousels already made for you, like smart. put in your photos and put in your text. So we're like going to make all this stuff for creators. And that's going to be the big e-commerce play. Love it. On the royalties, we're doing some stuff that doesn't fit my channel on Skillshare, which is great. So we're going to have more royalty income from that. Uh, I'm writing the books and then we have the music. So like I'm playing in all the spaces.
0: It's amazing. So, I mean, when somebody at a party says, well, so what do you do, Roberto? What do you say? Cause it sounds like you got 20 things.
1: Yeah. I'd say like, you know, <laughs> I, entrepreneur. Th- I tell people,
0: yeah, I'm an entrepreneur
1: and I have, you know, a digital agency. And then if they ask for any details beyond that, I say, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. I do coaching and I have a digital agency. And then, yeah. like,
0: oh, that's cool. And it's like. <laughs> Never yeah. say that you're a YouTuber. <laughs> you can if you want, if you look, want to get into it. I mean, you can.
1: I mean, like, but it's like, I don't like that. Like when you say you're a YouTuber, yeah, I feel like as much as people aspire to that now and now it's the thing to be and people look up to it. Yeah. It's very limiting to be beholden to a platform. Yeah it's not and i don't know that it's healthy long term to feel that your identity is youtuber and your identity is what this platform has given to you like i feel yeah i feel like when your whole identity is what this platform has given to you that there's there's too many strings that come with that in my opinion
0: you're right that's good i need to hear that that's good stuff let's end there roberto blake everybody go check him out on youtube of course Uh, we'll link it in the description down below. Thank you so much, Roberto, for coming on the podcast. We'll link all those things that you're talking about as well. If anybody's interested in doing a coaching session and looking at these templates, I'm excited about seeing all these bundles. I know I'm always looking for Photoshop templates and, uh, like if I'm working on a banner for my channel, I never know what to do. So that type of stuff is very valuable. So go check it out. We'll link it in the description. Thank you, Roberto, for coming on. Hopefully I'll see you at Vid Summit. Yeah.
1: Thanks for having me, Dave. See you soon.
0: Thanks. Hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Roberto Blake. Again, if you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, would you please consider going over to youtube.com slash GHpod. There you can subscribe and see the video interview with Roberto as well as all the other interviews I've done with Gerald, with Josh Yo, with Jevin Dovey, and Hayden Hillier-Smith, Logan Paul's editor. Go check it out. Subscribe. That's the only thing we're plugging other than, of course, going over to the Polar Pro website and checking out some of the products that we're selling there. The Peter McKinnon filter is one of our top sellers. I know I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Roberto and going deep into the YouTube algorithm talk. Uh, If you did as well, reach out to me on Twitter and say, hey, that was fun. Uh, Maybe even hit up Roberto and say, dude, that was great on the Golden Hour podcast. All right. Once again, my name is Dave Mays. This is the Golden Hour podcast, and we'll see you next week.